Hello, everyone. Welcome to Health or Consequences, the health policy podcast from Mass Inc. and Commonwealth Magazine. My name is John McDonough. I'm from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, and I'm joined by my uh, partner, Paul Haddis, from the Tufts University School of Medicine. And today we're going to be talking with Laura Pellegrini, who is the president and CEO of the Massachusetts Association of Health Plans. She's been in that position since 2010, and so approaching a decade. And uh, welcome, Laura. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. And so we'd like to start out, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about MAP and what it is and what sure, it does? absolutely. So I got my start um, working for Governor Dukakis. And John, I think at that time you were actually in the state legislature chairing our health care committee. Um, so I did that for several years and went to law school at night. I'm not quite sure how I got through that, but I did. And um, after the governor left office... I worked at the Attorney General's office in the Public Protection Bureau, um, worked for Barbara Anthony, and so I did that for a few years, and then I went to Harvard Pilgrim, and I was at Harvard Pilgrim for 13 years and uh, ran their government affairs operation, and when I first joined them in 1997, uh, they did not have a government affairs office, which is hard to believe given how regulated the health plans are. So I um, organized and ran that office for 13 years. When I left, I was a vice president. I also oversaw our charitable giving. And uh, for, I went back to state government, worked for Deval Patrick for a little less than a year. They were trying to get three major uh, pieces of legislation through the legislature. So worked with them, and we successfully got that legislation through. And um, I left to join MAP and um, became their president in 2010. And tell us a little about MAP. Okay, so MAP is an organization. It's a um, health insurance trade association. We have 17 members. We cover close to 3 million lives, and we're in the lines of business including Medicare, Medicaid, commercial, uh, the under 65, and the over 65 dual eligible population. I go back. I remember when in the 1980s it was the Massachusetts Association of HMOs, That's Health right. Maintenance Organizations, and so the organization has changed and the membership has changed a lot. That's right. That is right. Um, we, I think back in the day, it was largely an organization of just um, carriers who were offering HMO products. Today, folks offer um, coverage in multiple lines of business, um, PPO, HMO, um, but also Medicare and Medicaid. We also have the dental plans are part of our organization. So we're large and we've grown substantially since I've taken over. And you've got all of the major carriers in Massachusetts, with one exception, Massachusetts yes. Blue Cross and Blue Shield, which has been in and out over the years. What's the relationship and, and why is Blue Cross not around your table? Right. Um, you would really have to ask them because I'm not quite sure. I know that, uh, again, we have been growing. We've been adding membership every year. And during my tenure, we've really tried to focus on health care affordability. We've done amazing work, and John, you and Paul really have been you know, leading this effort um, to ensure coverage for all Massachusetts residents. But where we know we are now is around affordability. That's where we need to be focused. And so during my tenure, we've really tried to focus on affordability because the MAP members understand that we need to keep health care affordable. So we're constantly working to identify cost drivers, to educate the legislature, and to try to come up with creative solutions. So I think um, folks who um, are interested in that agenda have really been joining us and wanting to be part of that conversation. You know, one of the interesting things about health insurance in Massachusetts is that we are one of the few states where almost all the major carriers are Massachusetts state-based and not-for-profit. Mm -hmm. Are we 
an anomaly in that way? Are there I other states like really us? I think we really are. I think Minnesota may be similar, but I think a lot of people take for granted that it wouldn't be unusual for you to see a local CEO at a function. Um, and they're definitely part of the community with a charitable giving. Um, and the not-for-profit climate is unique to Massachusetts. I represent both not-for-profits and the for-profits um, have joined MAP, but I think we are unique in that the major carriers are not-for-profit. Okay, great. Laura, let me add my words of welcome first, but then let, let me dive into um, both ultimately issues of affordability, but also starting uh, with something a little bit about your own membership. Your two largest members, Harvard Pilgrim and Tufts Health Plan, have proposed to merge and are in the uh, process of doing that. And mergers uh, and, and acquisitions have been something that, at least in the provider space, you and your organization have been at times worried about. But about for this particular merger on the insurance side, uh, your thoughts about it? Yeah, so I will say that on the provider side, when mergers have come up, um, we have really looked at those about whether they're going to improve quality and lower cost, or we think it's actually going to um, actually raise prices and not enhance quality. And the uh, mergers that we've opposed, actually, we've been supported by the Health Policy Commission and some of their findings. As for um, Harvard Pilgrim and Tufts joining together, um, that is a competitive issue, and I don't want to really... Uh, talk about members when I have other members at the table as well. But I think Harvard Pilgrim and uh, Tufts understand that they need to, in this merger, provide value to the employer community and to the marketplace as they move forward. And I'm sure that is ever-present on their minds. Okay. Well, let me, let me push that issue of value as we talk about the mm -hmm. broader market. And, and there's lots to talk about here, which is um, the governor, as you know, has proposed a number of different elements to his proposed bill affecting health care aimed at uh, uh, for affordability. And uh, on the legislative side, some efforts have started, at least in the, in the pharma space, with, with, with the Senate, but there's lots of other work that they're going to be doing and certainly their, their House counterparts. So, John, and I want to take you through a, a set of issues sort of one at a time and just to hear your general reflection on where you think we ought to be going or the state legislature ought to be headed. So let's start with pharmaceutical pricing, since that is something actually that both houses got to say something about in the Medicaid space. And uh, certainly the governor has aspects of that in his proposal, and the Senate already has a, a bill that it passed uh, about a month or so ago. Mm -hmm. So about three or four years ago, my medical directors actually instructed me, they're like, you cannot do enough around um, pharmaceutical cost. It is crushing health plan budgets. And when um, we have huge cost drivers within the health plans, that reflects in premiums. I mean, underlying health care costs are what drive our premiums. Um, there's not as much as the state can do as the federal government, but there are some things they can do, and they can actually push the envelope a bit as well. Uh, we support the Kate Hogan bill, which um, is a transparency bill, and um, we've worked with um, the representative to file that. And that would hold um, the pharmaceutical companies um, accountable at the Health Policy Commission through the cost hearings. So as you both know, um, both plans and providers are held accountable through that process. The AG, uh, prior to um, the hearings, can give us a set of pre-filed questions that must be answered. They can take depositions. They can cross-examine at the hearings. We think that that's been a very effective tool when you think about the cost benchmark to hold the system accountable because we have been below or at the cost benchmark now for several years. So we think pharma needs to be at the table. The governor sort of took it a step further where he actually um, 
allowed, if you could not negotiate a good price, to actually have the HPC start to investigate the value and how um, the pharmaceutical industry sets their prices. Um, so that's also something, if that were to move forward and the Senate did um, something similar, we're also very supportive of. Um, the more transparency, the better. I, you know, My physicians that I work with at the health plans really can't answer the question about why we've seen a 65% increase in insulin, why generics that were on the market and inexpensive for years have now tripled in price. And that reflects in healthcare premiums. So we need to get control of this. And without sounding like Pollyanna, I really do believe we are very committed to universal access. But to make that work, all the players in the healthcare space need to be at the table. And I'm fond of saying if everyone were regulated the way the health plans are, we would have lower healthcare costs. Mm -hmm. So Governor Baker has filed a big healthcare bill mm -hmm. within the past month or so. Mm -hmm. And one of the hallmarks of it is a requirement for all big systems to pay a to spend a, a set increasing amount year by year on primary care mm -hmm. and behavioral health, mental health, and mm -hmm. substance use disorder services. What's your take on that? Is that feasible? Is that realistic? It's Governor Baker's priority. It's also a big priority for his Health and Human Service Secretary Mary Lou Sutters. Right. What, do, what do your members think of this? Right. So the provision would require providers, um, not just systems, but providers and health plans to dedicate 30% um, of spending to behavioral health and primary care. And they really are very broad in the way they define it, um, I think, to give folks a lot of space to think about how they might want to do this. But also it has to be in um, conjunction with the cost benchmark. So for us, we interpret that as we need to redistribute money within the healthcare system. And I think what's interesting, I think the governor was asked a question about price variation. And I think he was like, we need to like kind of start at the basics here. Um, so this is a way to really, I think, a different way to think about price variation. Uh, we see, I think there was something in the paper today, you know, that um, one of the systems is building a new orthopedic center. Um, of course they are. Orthopedic centers drive a ton of volume and are very expensive, so it makes money for a system. Uh, where you don't drive um, a great deal of revenue um, and profit is around behavioral health and primary care, yet they are probably the first point where a lot of people enter the system, and they are the foundation and the backbone. Um, so we are very supportive, and we actually worked with our medical directors. Um, Karen Spilka had asked us a while back, how would you end stigma? And I think where we um, came out is that we really need to begin to integrate primary care and behavioral health because the way our system delivers care can be stigmatizing. And so integrating the care and really investing in primary care and behavioral health. So I think our utopian view, the where we'd like to see things go, is that when you go to a primary care visit, you go to a pediatric visit, behavioral health is embedded right there. So if there are issues for your child or for you, you don't have to get a phone number and call somewhere else and go to a different office. But some of that can be triaged right there and evaluated right at the point of service. Do, do the plans and the providers know realistically what they're actually spending today on primary care and behavioral health services? Is that agreed? Or are there real definitional problems about what actually counts? I mean, I think that would be part of the work that needs to be done. And it was very broad in the governor's bill. So what counts if a plan is investing in um, health navigators or investing in IT infrastructure, does that count if it's supporting primary care and behavioral health? And by the same token, um, for providers, what counts? So I think those are details that need to be worked out. But I think directionally, um, where the governor and the secretary are going, make an important statement 
I think as a state, we don't want to just invest in those things that are high profit centers, but really looking at the needs of the Commonwealth. And I think we know primary care and behavioral health are a central need. You know, Laura, from a consumer perspective, a lot of consumers that I talk to say, gee, they are themselves or remember their family needs outpatient mental health care, but they often have find it difficult to get a provider who takes insurance. Is it, should it be a hope that this legislation somehow, through whatever mechanisms it uses, helps with that issue for folks? Um, I would hope so, because while this isn't targeted to rates per se, obviously rates could be part of this. Um, but when we think about workforce issues, I think as a layperson who's not in this space, that if Massachusetts were to dedicate 30% to primary care and behavioral health, practitioners going into that practice would see Massachusetts as a leader in a place they want to be because of the investments we're making. And so I would hope kids coming out of school would want to come to Massachusetts and begin their practice, both in primary care and behavioral health. And Rhode Island's doing some of this right now on primary care. They're going to move to behavioral health as the next phase. And I think they're seeing some of that and they're seeing some good results. So looking to just our neighboring state, I can provide some lessons to us. Let me turn to an issue which is both attracting Congress's attention as well as state governments, including our, our own. This has been in, uh, an issue that has been at least uh, in, in versions of our last health care bill, which ultimately didn't pass. And it's the whole issue of out-of-network care pricing for providers and surprise bills, and even if you want to throw into that the facility fees issue. So there's there's a lot there. Why don't you uh, dive in for us where you, where you think is most important? Okay, why don't we start with um, facility fees, because that might be easier, and then we'll get into surprise billing. But um, I think back several years ago, the federal government allowed hospitals that were part of campuses to charge facility fees if there were offices on the campus and they were supporting things like parking and security, et cetera. Fast forward, to today, where 70% of our physicians are either um, employed or contracted by large health systems. So the effect of this, just to be clear, is that patients, when they go to a place where there is a facility fee, they're paying both a professional fee, that's right. or they are the insurance company, and as well as a facility fee. That's so that's right. the issue we're talking and, about. And we're talking about uh, maybe an outpatient center that's several miles away from the campus attaching a facility fee. Um, could be $400, $500, whatever it may be, that is um, really blinded to the consumer until they get the bill. Um, there's really no reason for that. Again, they're getting a professional fee, and you're not on campus supporting the security or the parking lot. So uh, where the legislature landed in the bill that died last session was they both addressed the issue. Um, I think one of the branches grandfathered, similar to what Medicare did, which is, hey, for those who have facility fees today, you can continue, but no new facility fees. In the governor's new bill, I believe they banned facility fees outright. We would support that ban because, again, that is a charge to consumer on top of their health but insurance. The ban would still allow the grandfather stay in place or would it actually... The governor's ban bill, I believe, bans facility fees. I see. Fees. So they would be allowed to be collected anywhere, including places right. that have historically That's right. got them. Okay. And again, the rationale. So um, surprise billing. Um, this came up, um, Paul and I, I think, both served on the Price Variation Commission. Um, this came up. So this is largely uh, emergency room doctors, anesthesiologists, radiologists, and pathologists who are not um, part, they're not employed by a hospital or a hospital system, they don't have a contract, but they're really independent contractors within the um, four walls of the hospital who are providing services to patients, but because they're not affiliated with the hospital, they don't have a contract with the health plan. So unfortunately, I also am now a recipient of a surprise bill. I had um, outpatient surgery this summer and got a $1,600 anesthesiology bill. And I thought about asking the anesthesiologist if he were um, 
in network or out of network, but I wanted him to wake me up at the end of the procedure, so I didn't ask anything. But I do have a colleague in the legislature who did ask prior to her surgery. Um, I have to tell you, the facility was very busy. Tons of things were scheduled that day, tons of procedures. In my mind, there was no reason why he wouldn't be part of a hospital network, but he wasn't, and it was blinded to me. You would never know unless you were in our business. Mm -hmm. So what is happening in that case is that consumers are having um, their surgeries, uh, procedures, and they're getting home, they're getting a bill from the hospital or the physician's office, and then they're getting an additional bill, a separate bill from an anesthesiologist, radiologist, or pathologist. Which often they didn't have any role in selecting. Selecting, and you would think if you're going to an in-network facility. So plans have no way of knowing that this is going on. Um, I'm happy to report there have been some hospitals around the country that are stopping this practice, and Partners has told me that they're going to stop this practice and that um, the physicians will either be employed or contracted through partners. And I think that's an important example for all other providers in our state. Um, So Congress is looking at this issue. I think it comes down to what is paid um, at the Price Variation Commission. I think that we settled on not a price, but we said that it needs to be high enough to correctly reimburse the provider, but low enough so that people want to join a health plan network and not create this flood of everyone wanting to be out of network. So then it becomes... Let me just focus for a moment yeah. then. So, that, so what these bills are doing then is they're saying, okay, let's get rid of the surprise bill for the consumer. And now this physician, let's say, who doesn't yet have a contract needs to bill and get paid and what that payment level that should be. That's, that's the other like. part that's of the right. focus. That's okay. right. So we um, have supported um, two proposals. One would have um, the plans pay the average of what they pay other providers in their network. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems reasonable. That's and the, the other That's the rate-setting approach. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And the other would be to um, have it be some multiple of Medicare and maybe have the HPC determine what that rate is. Um, I think we hear from the providers, they are oppo- they do not, they want to hold the patient harmless, but sometimes they'll say that it should be a negotiation between the health plan and the provider. And I want to say to your listeners, if the plans don't prevail, then those additional costs end up in your premium. So um, I think we want to set a reasonable rate. And we also do not like arbitration. And when we explain the arbitration process to the business community, they were sort of appalled um, as we talk about administrative complexity and simplification. And so there's a recent report, I think last week by the Brookings Institute, which showed the New York model, which has baseball-style arbitration, is actually raising cost. So I don't think we want arbitration. Um, Congress is looking at this right now. We have two bills um, that are uh, competing right now, whether they get to the finish line or not. But I think this will be a key component in whatever Massachusetts health plan legislation emerges. And um, I think the federal government is allowing the states to act on this. A a lot there for uh, our listeners to to think about. Let me broaden this question of pricing a a little bit more because your organization has really been a leader in putting out reports showing some of the – significant variation provider pricing and the high prices that we tend to pay in Massachusetts. Uh, Last month, we had um, uh, Dr. Strongwater on, who also testified at health policy commission hearings, who thought, you know, despite all the discussion and the governor's effort at at redistribution, that perhaps we still need to intervene in the market 
on provider pricing to, to get to a better place. So what, what are your thoughts at this point? So I think the 2010 report by the Attorney General's Office, which first really documented the wide variation in rates and the point that none of this was really based on acuity or um, quality, but rather based on brand, uh, market power, geographic isolation, um, really shook the marketplace. And again, we have the highest healthcare cost in the nation, and that is because of years of unchecked growth. The cost benchmark is terrific. We have that in place. We're growing. Our cost growth is slower than the national average, but our base is very inflated um, for years of unchecked uh, cost growth. So, you know, I think we've done multiple runs at this in the legislature. I think we interpreted the AG's report back in 2010 as the plans need additional tools to deal with those providers that have market power. Unfortunately, for some of the lower-paid providers, and we saw this last session, uh, 26 community hospitals made a run at trying to establish a rate floor at the 90th percentile. And um, as we dug into that um, with an outside consultant, many of those hospitals were doing actually quite well. So not all of them needed Not boost. all of them needed it. Some of them yeah. were tied to very wealthy systems. And so there probably are five to seven hospitals that are struggling, but they're largely Medicaid, um, they largely have a Medicaid population that they're serving. The AG provides some information um, during the cost trends hearings where they actually look at um, profit margins by line of business of the hospitals. And those particular hospitals that have a high Medicaid penetration are actually making money on their commercial business but losing it on their Medicaid business, which isn't totally surprising. Um, so, you know, raising a rate floor to 90%, first of all, is rate setting with no cap at the top. We're going to have runaway costs as the top grows, the bottom is going to grow. Uh, we could have supported a rate floor so long as there was a rate ceiling, um, but that was really kind of untenable in the legislature uh, where I don't think folks were comfortable about setting a rate um, ceiling. So, you know, I think we're going to have to see where this all goes. I'm not sure there's a legislative appetite to totally tackle this. There may be an appetite to help the five to seven um, hospitals. I think we need to look at Medicaid rates. I'm not sure the employer community would support the health plans paying more because it seems to be a, a state problem with Medicaid rates. So switching gears a bit. So you're a um, highly respected health policy leader and voice in Massachusetts. You've well, been coming from you. That means a lot. <laughs> you've been around and seen things from so many different angles. Um, could you kind of characterize the atmosphere in the state house these days in terms of getting things done with the governor, Speaker DeLeo, and Senate President Spilka. How easy or difficult or challenging <clears throat> do you find it these days to make progress and advance your yeah, agenda? I, mean, I think we have great relationships with um, both the House and the Senate and the governor. You obviously have a governor who knows about health care, the ins and the outs. He served as a CEO of a health plan uh, for several years. Mary Lou Sutters, who's no stranger to behavioral health and the health care system. Um, so on the, on the um, administration side, just two really strong, knowledgeable people. Um, the Senate's very committed. They really dig in um, and do their work. We work well with them very closely, and we work well with the House. I think there's a real commitment to do um, things that in the best interest to consumers. I think this whole notion of keeping health care affordable is paramount. But we do have the reality that some of our biggest employers are hospital systems and biotech and pharma. So it's finding that sweet spot. But I think that, um, again, we all need to kind of lean in and um, – work to make health care more affordable. And plans have been doing their part now for several years um, with different requirements in state law, including really a cap on their surplus. Um, and 
offering rebates or having to provide rebates to consumer if we don't meet medical loss ratio requirements. So no other sector has the kind of requirements that we have, um, but we all need to be thinking about that. And I did hear Dr. Strongwater's comments, and I also, um, this morning, I think in modern healthcare, some uh, CEOs from hospitals outside of Massachusetts were talking about rate caps, and that that may need to be um, something that's looked at long-term for the sustainability of the Affordable Care Act. Um, so, you know, we'll see where that goes. I think this session, we're really looking at some of these other issues because I think they're achievable, and they're also very meaningful. So last question is focusing nationally. Uh, the big raging debate in the Democratic presidential primary around Medicare for all. Uh, one of the candidates from Massachusetts, including Bernie Sanders from Vermont, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are proposing Medicare for all that would effectively put your whole sector out of business. Yes. <laughs> um, how do you look at that dynamically? It's very interesting. Senator Warren came out with a financing plan that seems to have badly damaged her momentum. How are you looking at and viewing this whole conversation and so, process? So I have a lot of respect for Senator Warren. I will say that many years ago, she was against Medicare for All. Now that she's a candidate um, for president, I think I understand in the Democratic Party and the progressive wing why she is where she is. But it's interesting coming from Massachusetts, where a single-payer system would destroy the not-for-profit health plans that are so highly rated and really hurt, if not destroy, um, our providers and our medical research. Um, so that being said, I do think that when she was forced to come out with a number, $20 trillion, there have been other estimates, $30 trillion, I think that's shocking to the average person. And I go back to, there was a, a poll out, I think, from Gallup this week, but we know this to be true with our own um, surveys. People like their health plans. We have very high member satisfaction. So when you think about blowing up a whole system and starting over and government's going to run healthcare, I think that's very scary, particularly for people who have complex medical needs, where the health insurance industry is serving those needs, to think you may be subject to something different. So I think if you look at it, it has stalled her campaign. Um, and, you know, I think she's rethinking some of this now. But um, but the affordability issue is, is still there for a lot of folks. So the question becomes then, I would say if you're if you're not supporting healthcare, I mean Medicare for all, and you want to maintain a private insurance system as you, as you started, making it more affordable under such a scheme seems seems paramount, right? Right, it is, and we have done so much work. We have more data in Massachusetts than any other state about the drivers of healthcare cost, but politically, it's challenging. So I don't know if the answer is to give the Health Policy Commission more authority to either file legislation to make some of these decisions, but. If the political structure is unable to because it's so difficult, um, then maybe we need to be thinking in other ways. But I think, again, it is the cost, right? We've figured out the, how the coverage answer. It's now the cost. So Laura Pellegrini, President and CEO of the Massachusetts Association of Health Plants, thank you for joining us today. This is a great conversation. Thank I you think so we've much. all learned a lot from you. And uh, good luck in the future. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And thanks, Paul. Thank you. And we'll be back next month with another Health or consequences. So welcome back. We just listened to Laura Pellegrini, the president of MAP. Um, Paul, what did you think? What were your impressions? What struck well, with you? Well, a lot of richness there. But let me just focus on, on one issue, which is the uh, out-of-network surprise billing issue. And while there's agreement with everyone that consumers ought to be protected from surprise bills, the, the controversy, both statewide and federally, is what the default rate ought to be to pay the providers, and Laura focused on an issue which was even highlighted in the Globe 
that uh, if you choose a, a style of, of, of the bill default that doctors and hospitals are pushing for, a more arbitration tied maybe to charges, that really uh, can break the bank. And so MAP, I think, along with consumers, are pushing more for some sort of benchmark rate, either Medicare pricing or some average in the marketplace. So that caught my attention. I'll tell you what struck me. So last year in 2017-18, in that two-year session, we saw major bills from the governor, from the House, and from the Senate. And at the end of the day, in the summer of 2018, they couldn't come together and nothing happened. And a lot of very good policy got left on the cutting floor. It looks like from what I'm hearing at this point, not just from uh, Laura Pellegrini, but from many others, that people are much more upbeat and positive about coming up with a coherent and large health reform bill that there's more possibility of a consensus. And it seems like one of the reasons for that is that it appears that the issue of setting a hospital rate floor for the community hospitals appears to be off the table, and that was the big stumbling block. So Perhaps think, less needed, too, than, than the breadth of where it was uh, a year or two ago. And so it seems like the prospects for something important happening this year are much more likely than they otherwise would have been. But any other final thoughts? No, let's leave it there, John, and uh, we look forward for everybody joining us again next month. Thank you.